0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 5th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast focused on appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. Over the past week, judges on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal have traded some remarkably pointed jurisprudential barbs, coming within the pages of three en banc orders declining to reconsider, earlier rulings in cases involving immigration, campaign finance, and homelessness, In each en banc denial, a handful of judges from the court's conservative side vigorously and sometimes caustically noted their dissents and displeasure. Senior Judge Dierman O'Scanlon, joined by five colleagues, called one panel opinion absurd. Judge Milan Smith was only somewhat more diplomatic in saying his colleagues had badly misconstrued precedent and created a new constitutional right from whole cloth. Though not lacking in fervor, those dissents were overmatched numerically. The five or six votes in each case supporting rehearing among a court of 23 active judges didn't come close to putting the outcomes in any doubt, but as a couple of judges in the majority put out, the passionate dissenters were not truly aiming at persuading their colleagues around to their side, but meant instead to advertise to the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court that these cases necessitate correction. Judge Marsha Berzon, concurring in an en banc denial in the homelessness case, wrote that, dissents in this context read more like petitions for writ of certiorari on steroids rather than reasoned judicial opinions. And moreover, she wrote, the writings tend to offer distorted presentations of the issues in cases and create the false impression of rampant error. Judge Richard Paez in the immigration case wrote that his senior colleague from Oregon, Judge O. Scanlon, was attempting to obscure the core issue of that case with a smokescreen of the exclusionary rule. Judge Brizon previously wrote a piece in the California Law Review about What she viewed as the unique and counterproductive dynamics of dissents from rehearing en banc, which are called dissentals by the high appellate nerds in charge of coining such terminology. She wrote that, unlike as with dissents in traditional three judge panel opinions, the purpose and tone of dissentals are problematic, the purpose often being advocacy to the high court, and resultingly the tone tending towards the acrimonious. Both dynamics were clearly on display two years ago when the circuit sharply sparred in en banc orders over the administration's travel ban, eventually upheld by Scuders' conservative cohort. Burzon worries dissentals can undermine public confidence in the court as a judicial rather than political body. Others view dissentals as a fairly natural outlet for, in this circuit, more conservative judges that have long felt and been outnumbered by their more liberal colleagues. On the show today, we're going to spin out a couple of different threads from this occasion of high judicial dudgeon. First, we'll welcome on our good friend and federal courts expert, Arthur Hellman, professor emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He'll offer the broad historical perspective that only he can on the use of dissentals and on their benefits and drawbacks. Then we'll dig into the substance of one of those three rulings the court let stand, a ruling that dissenting Judge Mylan Smith wrote will wreak havoc on cities like Los Angeles with large homeless populations. In that ruling, a panel found that a Boise, Idaho law preventing sleeping or camping in public spaces was unconstitutional, at least in instances where there were no indoor shelter beds available. Judge Smith, with Judges Callahan, Bea, Akuta, and newcomers Bennett and Nelson wrote that blocking enforcement of such laws is not required by a Supreme Court precedent, and moreover, makes combating homelessness harder for cities like Los Angeles, where the unfortunate phenomenon has steadily grown. We'll speak with Mark Rosenbaum, former chief counsel of the ACLU of Southern California and currently a director at Public Counsel. Rosenbaum, with the ACLU, represented homeless plaintiffs in a suit over a decade ago against the city of Los Angeles that very nearly resembles the recent Boise case and that yielded a similar result from the Ninth Circuit, namely a ruling that LA could not enforce anti-public sleeping ordinances against homeless individuals who were without any other resort for shelter. That ruling, interestingly, was essentially wiped from the books when the city entered a settlement with the plaintiffs pledging not to enforce those ordinances until sufficient shelters had been erected to house homeless population. Mr. Rosenbaum will get us up to date on just what the status is of that settlement and how this Boise ruling will impact Los Angeles. But before getting into all of that, one other bit of notable Ninth Circuit news came from the Senate Judiciary Committee today as two Trump nominees cleared the committee on party line votes. That means Kenneth Lee and Daniel Collins are each now a full Senate vote away from becoming the president's fifth and sixth additions to the ideologically rebalancing Ninth Circuit. A few words on the day's proceedings. I'm glad to welcome in our Ninth Circuit beat reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Brian.
0: Tell me about Mr. Collins and Mr. Lee, and if anything particularly of note happened in the committee hearing today.
1: That's right. Um, Today, the committee voted uh, along party lines 12 to 10 to advance both of the nominees to the full Senate for a final vote. Um, It's been a contentious process both to finally nominate people to these seats uh, in California um, as well as the actual hearing process. Senator Feinstein and Harris have butted heads with the White House since um, really 2017 when negotiations began over these seats. The White House finally felt like they were not uh, coming anywhere in terms of a compromise and went ahead late last year, and nominated uh, Dan Collins and Ken Lee uh, to these seats. It subsequently came out that uh, Mr. Lee had not disclosed a number of what uh, Feinstein described as controversial writings from his college days and and later in his legal career. Um, In them, he was critical of affirmative action, um, sexual harassment reporting, sort of hot-button issues like that. And it's been an interesting process. He, unlike other nominees, pretty much walked back all of the opinions um, he articulated in his college days, saying that he was a young conservative, just sort of experimenting with argumentation, um, and he said he's developed and changed his perspective on issues like LGBTQ rights and uh, sexual harassment reporting. That testimony did not win over the favor of any Democrats. Everyone present at the hearing yesterday, or excuse me, today voted against him. Sir Collins has sort of kept a lower profile in terms of contentious political writings. He has signed a number of amicus briefs and conservative legal issues, but uh, he's mostly kept a typical white-shoe corporate practice at Munger Tolls. He's defended tobacco companies and oil companies, which through the objections of Democratic senators. But by all accounts, Collins will likely be a traditional conservative judge uh, once he is likely confirmed.
0: You know, Collins and Lee were nominated on the same day, I believe, as another gentleman, uh, Daniel Bress, who was slated to fill uh, also a vacant seat in California. But he did not present in front of the committee today. What's the status of his nomination?
1: That's right. Um, Mr. Collins and Mr. Lee were actually both nominated last year along with a gentleman named Patrick Boumette. Feinstein and Harris were very upset about Boumette's nomination. He was never presented as a a possible pick. He's an assistant U.S. attorney down in San Diego and has been working in the Justice Department um, for the last year. So when new nominations were sent out in January, after the old nominations expired, the White House added uh, Daniel Bress's name to the list. Mr. Bress was born in California, grew up here, um, went to college on the East Coast, and been a litigator out there for the rest of his life. Uh, He's currently a a DC partner at Kirkland and Ellis,
2: and his
1: nomination has not gone anywhere. He's not had a uh, committee hearing and certainly hasn't had a vote. And today, um, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, sort of explain publicly why he's been holding the nomination back. Um, it has to do with Feinstein and Harris's concern that he's not sufficiently from California. He said he hasn't made up his mind as to what he'll eventually do with the nomination, but he did note that federal law requ- requires circuit judges to be a resident of you know, their circuit um, by the time they're appointed. So we'll see what happens with Mr. Press and his path forward to the Ninth Circuit.
0: One other nominee, I should say now confirmed judge, is uh, Bridget Beatty, who had previously been a magistrate judge in the District of Arizona. She was voted through by the full Senate in a fairly bipartisan manner, got 78 um, upvotes. Tell me a bit about Judge Beatty and, and I suppose what might explain her more bipartisan appeal.
1: That's right. Judge Beatty, as you said, um, or until last week, was a uh, magistrate judge in Phoenix. She uh, clerked with Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit, who's known as a a fairly conservative um, judicial voice. Uh, Judge Beatty worked um, at a firm in Phoenix that later merged with Steptoe and Johnson. She was, for a good while, a federal prosecutor down in Phoenix, and then uh, she took the bench in, I believe, 2012, Democrats had little to pin on her in terms of opposition, and a number of of uh, more moderate senators um, joined in supporting her. It's interesting to note that the White House had um, preferred two other gentlemen, actually, uh, in favor of that seat, but um, the late Senator McCain and Senator Flake reportedly advocated for um, Judge Beatty's nomination, uh, which might have sort of... Helped her gather support among Democrats um, who are not keen on supporting President Trump's effort to rapidly fill uh, the federal judiciary with his nominees.
0: Okay, last one. It's would you say it's uh, pretty safe to say that both Lee and and Collins will get through their their full Senate vote? And also, if so, have we reached a point where the president can no longer complain that the Ninth Circuit is too liberal if he gets his fifth and sixth judge onto the court?
1: Well. Uh, Time will tell whether President Trump will Mm -hmm. stop attacking the Ninth Circuit, um, but certainly more conservatives on the court will make him a happier man.
0: Okay, we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, As always, Nick Sonnenberg, Ninth Circuit Beat Reporter, thanks very much for being with us. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Over the past weeks, the Ninth Circuit has had about as public and pointed a feud as one sees in federal appellate courts. It's in the pages of three orders denying rehearing in high-profile cases. Arthur Hellman, professor emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, is here now to discuss just what to make of this atypical acrimony. Professor, welcome on to the show.
3: It's a pleasure, Brian.
0: Monday, Judge Marsha Burzon articulated a pretty unalloyed Condemnation of a particular practice here, the use of dissentals among her Ninth Circuit colleagues. I'll just read from the top of her opinion, concurring in the denial of the rehearing en banc. She said, quote, I strongly disfavor the circuit's innovation in en banc procedure, ubiquitous dissents in the denial of rehearing en banc, sometimes accompanied by concurrences in the denial. As I have previously explained, she continues, dissents in the, den- in the denial of rehearing en banc in particular often engage in a distorted presentation of the issues in the case, creating the impression of rampant error in the original panel opinion, although a majority, often a decisive majority, of the active members of the court perceived no error. So Professor, there's a lot to unpack there. For one thing, it's pretty remarkably stinging language. You don't see a ton of that sort of um, rebuke in, in judicial opinions, commonly at least. And also, it seems that Judge Brazan is suggesting this practice is particular and maybe particularly pernicious or problematic in the Ninth Circuit. From your studying the federal courts, is is that the case is what she's describing actually a problem uniquely in this circuit?
3: Well, there are two things that occurred to me, that occurred to me when when reading that. The first, uh, I just like to quote from uh, another judge who said the following, dissents from denial of rehearing and bank have proliferated in our court and in other courts of appeals, to the point to the, where the practice may said to have become institutionalized. Well, that was written in 1986 by a judge in the 11th Circuit. So there we are 30 years ago, somebody maybe not complaining, but certainly suggesting that a practice that maybe he didn't entirely approve of had become institutionalized second thing is that Judge Verzan herself has written and joined in dissents from denial of rehearing in bank, one of them just last year in, in an immigration case. So whether it's it's a good thing or a bad thing, and we, we can certainly talk about that, I think it's fair to say 30 years after that 11th Circuit uh, commentary, it is now an institutionalized practice. I have seen these dissents, I think, in, in every one of the circuits, and there are just quite a few of them.
0: I might ask you, I'm not sure if you noticed Judge Berzon's reference to one of her own law review writings in the California Law Review. She yes. referenced it in, in the, her concurrence this week, and I took a look at it. In there, she also cites sort of what she describes as a growing trend of these sorts of um, opinions, the dissentals in the, in the Ninth Circuit. So maybe if not overall across the federal judiciary, has this practice increased us to in the Ninth Circuit, do you know, over the past 10, 20 years?
3: Well, it has increased in the last, yes, 10 or 20 years. It's something you didn't see very often in the early years of, and banks, when, when the courts of appeals were, were much smaller, and perhaps when there were fewer hot-button issues that were coming to the courts of appeals. So it's it's something that doesn't go back in large numbers to the 1950s and 1960s, but it has been going on certainly since the 1970s and even more since the start of this century in fairly substantial numbers. And again, it's all circuits. It's not just the
0: nines. Maybe one thing to, to put on the table here at the outset is this particular criticism from Judge Berzon and, you know, other judges have also issued similar type criticisms and, and concurrences and denials on Buck in the past. It, it sort of um, has the implicit premise in there that there's something about these dissents, these dissentals, that um, it makes them importantly distinct from just, say, the traditional dissent in a three-judge panel opinion, which you know I don't hear a whole lot of complaints about those so what about that premise that, that this is something distinct and so that perhaps there are other dynamics at play and other reasons why these sorts of dissents you know might have less of a a, a good and justifiable basis in, in appellate procedure?
3: Well, in thinking about whether they're justifiable and valuable or not, I think we can draw a distinction between two types of cases at the very outset. Cases where there is a dissent in the panel opinion, and cases where there is not. I'm thinking now about the relationship between circuits, because although, of course, precedent in one circuit is not binding on other circuits, judges do look to what their colleagues in other circuits have done. So if you have a case where there is no dissent within the the panel opinion, and the same issue comes before another circuit. Those judges might say, "Well, look, here are some judges who've looked at it, and they came unanimously to the conclusion we'll obviously have to do our own thinking and research, but you know that that sort of sets you in a direction. The question looks very, very different if there is a dissent. And when there's no dissent in the panel, I think it is a valuable thing." for an off-panel judge to say, wait a minute, this case, this issue is not so easy. There's something to be said on the other side, and here it is. Now, that, that covers the case where there's no dissent. Where there is a dissent, I think it's a little bit harder to to justify the, the dissent from denial, but very often these dissents from denial do point up other aspects of the case, so they put the issue in a, in a broader context, that can serve to to help understanding of the issue by other judges, by lawyers in the circuit, and of course by Supreme Court justices at whom some or many of these dissents are really
0: aimed. Maybe starting to sort of pull apart the different principal qualms that, that Judge Berzan mentioned, both in this concurrence and, and in the law review piece, that I mentioned one thing that she's written is that the tone of these dissentals can often be maybe harsher than you might see in a typical dissent in a panel opinion. You know, we've referenced one of these en banc denials that came down over the last week from the Ninth Circuit, but there were actually three. And one of the other ones, uh, Judge O. Scanlon wrote that the panel opinion was absurd. You know, Judge Smith, in this, the first case we mentioned, the martin Burr City of Boise case, uh, he said that the opinion was badly misguided. I suppose, you know, you might see, or it seems to me that you've seen a bit more strident language in some of these dissentos over time. Perhaps is that just because you tend to have cases called for en banc potential review when those cases are the hot button type issues, the major high profile cases, or is there something about this particular form of judicial writing that lends itself to uh, to more truculent verbiage?
3: I think it is an impressionistic matter. I do have that that impression that there is more of this high voltage language and provocative language in in dissents from denial of, of rehearing. Although, as you point out, these typically are issues that arouse passions and are issues that are important and, and uh, on a large scale. So that may explain some of the rhetoric. I mean, you do see strong rhetoric in in panel dissents also, and maybe it would turn out if you did a you know an empirical examination that uh, there wouldn't be that much difference. I mean, one one thing I wonder about on this, my understanding is that most of these dissents are based on the memoranda that the judge, the authoring Judge, wrote within the court to persuade his or her colleagues to take the case in bank. And you actually would think that those would have somewhat more moderate rhetoric because you wouldn't think you'd expect to persuade um, other judges by waving the red flag. So it's a little puzzling in that respect, but the the phenomenon is very real.
0: I think... Judge Perzon gets to that last point that you made a little bit in her law review article in explaining you know, sort of the actual purpose, which she also sort of lays out in this concurrence this week, that a lot of times the folks writing the dissentals aren't really attempting to persuade their colleagues around to their side on the en banc vote, but instead are writing to a higher court, to the Supreme Court, to let them know that this particular you know, given case might be a good one for them to, um, to consider – what to make of you know that, that purpose? Is there something problematic with that goal of dissentals? A, a judge person seems to think so, but is that distinct, I guess, from the purpose of a judge writing just a normal dissent? Dissents sort of by their nature are meant to maybe reach beyond a given court as a, a future court or you know another court that uh, might in the future get a chance to consider the matter. Uh, what do you think on that?
3: Well, I think Justice Douglas once said something like, uh, very much along those lines, to censor an appeal to the future, and the future can be um, the same court, but some different judges at a later time, or it can be a different court, and in this particular circumstance, the Supreme Court of the the United States. And it may be that some some of this rhetoric uh, gets into the opinion in the expectation that lawyers filing the third petition in the Supreme Court will then use that same language as, of course, they they often do in trying to persuade the court to uh, to hear the case. The purpose of influencing the Supreme Court, I don't I don't see that as improper. Judges, lower court judges, um, in a number of different contexts, will raise questions about the whether a current law is sound policy or whether something should be reconsidered. And I'm not sure that there's a huge difference between doing that, for example, in a concurring opinion that says we're following the Supreme Court here, but we think the court ought to reconsider this, and uh, a dissent from denial of N Banks saying my court got this wrong and this is a pretty important issue. And the only place to get it corrected is the United States Supreme Court. So I I can see why people are concerned about it, because judges aren't supposed to get that caught up in the, the issues that they decide. But if they think that the current law is misguided, whether it's Supreme Court law or their own court's law, it does seem to me that it's legitimate for the judge to say so and explain why.
0: It does seem like obviously there's certainly two sides to to the coin. You know, judge Persohn suggests also in that law review article that displaying you know less decorum than might be ideal is the sort of thing that could tend to erode some public confidence in the court. The court, I guess behaves perhaps best when it outwardly seems to present maybe a as united front as, as it possibly can and maybe doesn't show fractures that sound a bit like they're politically tinged as they often do in cases like this that you know come up in politically charged issues. Um, but on the other hand, it, it sort of seems like the public might want their courts to be as transparent as possible and if there are these, fault lines and these different opinions about the status of law at any given time, you know, maybe there's benefit to, to those being aired. I guess, um, you know, is, is that how you kind of see that issue and just in terms of whether or not the heated nature or the just inclusion of these dissentals has any impact on, I guess, public faith and trust in the integrity of the courts?
3: Well, that's that's a question that has been raised and thought about for a very long time and not just in the courts of appeals, but in the Supreme Court. In, in the Supreme Court, when uh, William Howard Taft was chief justice, and that goes back now, boy, almost a century, um, he thought dissents were terrible, uh, just for the reason that you suggest that. He thought that it did diminish respect for the court and for the court's decisions, and partly because of his leadership, there was a very strong tradition in that court of rarely, rarely dissenting, judges, justices would express disagreement at the conference when the justices discussed the case, but when the opinion came out, they'd say something like, well, you know, you still haven't convinced me, but I I don't think it's important enough to dissent. Um, I don't think any judges do that today, either on the Supreme Court or, or elsewhere. So, the, the norm has changed from what it was 100 years ago. And as you suggested, I think um, there, there is something to transparency when judges lay out their differences in a respectful manner and point out that the, these issues that many of the issues that come before the courts, both the Supreme Court and the lower courts, are difficult. And here are our judges thrashing them out and thinking them through in in the best way possible. Now, that doesn't answer the question whether the language used is is always the most appropriate. I think we can distinguish between disagreeing and, for example, impugning motives, which is very very rare. And I don't think any of those these opinions do that. that that's a point worth emphasizing that even though. Some of the language is a little bit strident. I don't think any of these dissents we're seeing saying, "Well, the judges decided this case because of their opposite political party or because they have some ideological agenda that they want to move forward." But still, the the, the strident uh, rhetoric is is not what judges are supposed to be uh, in the business of using. Part of judicial temperament to to put that aside. So I would would distinguish between the content of the opinions and the rhetoric used in in expressing the the different views.
0: Maybe um, it seemed like one of the last principal qualms that in particular Judge Berzon has had with the dissental practice is that, as she also wrote in that law review piece, the judges that weigh in on the en banc question, the full complement of active judges, Aside from the three panel judges that, I guess, heard the arguments and were part of the case in its full appellate life cycle, those other en banc voters she has written you know, hadn't really, I guess, heard the case fully on the merits and they're sort of coming in after the fact and and finding a particular issue that might be wrong with the case. I mean, do you have any thoughts on on that qualm that these folks have, I guess, less grounding to um, articulate some, some problem with – the matter if the I guess the original panel didn't find one? Well
3: that's certainly one of the main arguments that has been made against these dissents from the Nilevan Bank. There are two thoughts that occurred to me in that connection. One is that if there are aspects of the record or the oral argument that bear significantly on the resolution of the case, they ought to be in the panel opinion. So that should be available to all of the judges of the court as well as to members of the public who care about the issue. The second thing is that these are dissents from the decision of the court not to hear the case in bank. They're technically, at least, and in some significant real way, not dissents from the panel opinion. They are saying we should hear this case in bank and then... The court, the judges, and in the Ninth Circuit, as you, you've said, it's the chief judge and the ten selected at random. The judges who actually hear the case uh, in Bank, if it if it is called, if it if the vote succeeds, they will read the full record and devote the full study to it. So, the the judge dissenting from denial in Bank is saying we should take another look at this. And of course, in the course of saying that he explains why the, the decision seems so wrong but it has happened that judges who vote for uh, in bank sometimes after full study uh, come to the conclusion that the panel got it right after all so the the context is there's a call for a second look and i'm not sure you need to read the full record to to make that kind of suggestion in a persuasive way.
0: That makes sense. That might be just a, sort of a, a minor point, but one that I thought was a bit interesting, and at least two and maybe all of these dissentals, we see a couple of names of the newest members of the Ninth Circuit, Judge Bennett out in Hawaii and Judge Nelson in Idaho. I, I'm not sure if this is actually the case, but I had thought there was sort of a practice of new judges maybe not weighing in in this particular manner, dissenting in the en banc stage. Did you note at all the participation and, and the clear, vigorous dissent also um, signed onto by those new members?
3: Well, I certainly paid attention to that. And in fact, you may have noticed uh, a couple of weeks earlier, there was actually a dissent from Denial the Bank in which the only dissenters were two of President Trump's uh, nominees, a uh, takings case involving a sovereign immunity issue, and that was even more surprising to me that you had uh, these these very, very new judges suddenly jumping in with, with both feet that way. You know, that's the sort of thing which probably would not have been done 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but they are now Article Three judges. Their commissions have been signed. They're members of the court. They are able to participate in the deliberations and... I guess we just live in a faster paced society where where people jump into things in a way that they might have done not have done in a in a prior generation. Yes, I was a little bit surprised, but probably I should not have been.
0: Maybe just a, a couple of last ones. Do you draw any sort of connection between the successful confirmation of now I believe four and it's looking like potentially another couple of Trump nominees to the circuit? Do connection between that, uh, say, potentially increasing rebalancing of the ide- ideological nature of the, the court and the fairly you know, heated exchanges over this past week? Do you think that a court that begins to get a little bit more 50-50 in terms of the political divide will more often see um, some exchanges like this where the conservative judge- judges mostly outnumbered for the last few decades – See the potential to to you know, win some of these cases and, and and regain some actual control over the jurisprudence in the circuit
3: well that's a fascinating question well of course uh, I would be speculating just as much as, as anybody else which which won't stop me uh, from doing it. you know the way you put it would actually suggest that the judges who have been in the minority On the full court, or who enter the court where their point of view has generally been a minority one, would actually be as circumspect and diplomatic as they could be to try to win over judges in the central section of 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 the court, looking at it as as a spectrum on the um, ideological, as a part of an ideological spectrum. Rather than using rhetoric that would turn people off, they would try to say, okay, yes, I'm the new kid on the block. I I haven't participated in these debates before, but here's a precedent that looks wrong to me. Maybe we ought to rethink this. So there's at least a possibility that that would lead to a, a tempering of the rhetoric because you have the sides are more evenly balanced. And I do think that what judges respond to is a reasoned argument, not accusations or exaggerated predictions of doom.
0: You know, one last one I I gather from your recapitulation of sort of the historical trends of, of this practice and how it's actually fairly common outside of the Ninth Circuit that you don't imagine, notwithstanding some of these calls for uh, you know more uniformity at the en banc stage, uh, you don't imagine that dissentals and dissenting from these sorts of orders um, are going away anytime soon?
3: They're not going away
0: anytime soon.
3: I mean, they, they've been very well established, and I think particularly on the conservative side with a conservative Supreme Court, we're going to see, if anything, more of them as judges frustrated by their own court's uh, failure to see the light as as they see it, that there will be more of these dissents uh, quite uh, frankly aimed at the Supreme Court. There will be some, by the way, on the other side, too, because I think we've seen even from the two newest justices occasionally and in particular cases, sympathy for what is referred to as the the liberal perspective. so we may also see some dissents from the other side aimed at the two newest Supreme Court justices who haven't uh, staked out positions or, or have were in their lower court opinions court of appeals opinions may have signaled sympathy for, for for some changes in the law. So we could be seeing it on the other side too, although I, I do expect that most of the dissents from denial aimed at the Supreme Court will come from the conservative side.
0: Well, uh, if not always decorous, they're usually pretty entertaining, so we'll look forward to more of these opinions, but we'll leave it there for now. Arthur Hellman is a professor of law emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Professor, thanks again for joining me.
3: It's been a pleasure, Brian.
0: One of the three Ninth Circuit opinions that will bypass on banc review, and stand as good law for now, is Martin v. The City of Boise in which a panel led by Clinton appointee Marcia Burzon decided that it violates the Eighth Amendment when a city enforces ordinances against homeless individuals for sleeping outside in public spaces, when, at least, those individuals have no other realistic options. Six judges, led by George W. Bush, appointed Mylon Smith, said the ruling badly misconstrued precedent, and moreover was bad policy, that would prevent cities like Los Angeles from aiding and alleviating their growing homeless communities. The Ninth Circuit issued a very similar ruling 13 years ago in a case brought by our next guest Mark Rosenbaum who was then with the ACLU of Southern California and is now is with public counsel in that earlier case Jones versus the City of Los Angeles Mr. Rosenbaum represented homeless plaintiffs and secured a Ninth Circuit ruling that sounds a lot like this new recent one but the ruling was vacated when a settlement was reached in which the city promised not to enforce anti-public sleeping laws until more shelter space was constructed Mr. Rosenbaum is here to update us on the effect of that settlement presently, and to speak about the constitutional and policy implications in play in this city of Boise ruling. Mr. Rosenbaum, welcome on the show.
2: I'm glad to be here.
0: I'd like to home in to the question at the heart of of the city of Boise case, which seems to me, as I understand it, the uh, issue with the question of voluntariness, whether the the government can penalize conduct that you might not describe as altogether um, a voluntary act. Judge Berzon, in her opinion that will now stand, says, you know, if there are no beds, no shelter in a given municipality, and someone is homeless. Then, they're sleeping outside in a public space. is is not really a choice. It's just sort of a physical necessity. And the government really shouldn't you know, be in the business of penalizing folks for the actions they take that aren't genuine choices. Is that the the argument? Or the yeah, novelty? that's
2: that's the just that's the gist of it. Um, Judge Burzon in the uh, in the Martin case relied upon a um, decision also by the Ninth Circuit going back to 2006 that said that where individuals are homeless um, and where they are being arrested for essentially carrying out the same activities that you and I carry out every day, basic human activities, sitting, sleeping, but where they have no alternative to sleep anywhere but the streets, then they are being criminalized, they are being penalized for the status of being poor, for the status of being homeless, and that that's a violation of Eighth Amendment principles. The Eighth Amendment uh, of the Constitution, which talks about cruel and unusual punishment, says that government cannot criminalize conditions that you um, aren't responsible for, and that you, you are effectively powerless to change so you can't be criminalized for having a certain disease you can't be criminalized for an addiction and um the um the jones case and now the martin case have made it the law of this circuit that uh a community a city a county a state cannot arrest you uh prosecute you for being homeless where there are in fact there are not enough shelter beds or other housing um, by which you can avail yourself to do so is to criminalizing you for your economic condition and for trying to just live the basic necessities of life.
0: That case that you cite, the Jones v. City of Los Angeles case that you were a part of, did, as you say, hold very similar to the one that came down you know, last fall, and that will now be upheld. But of course, it, it was vacated, taken sort of out of the appellate books because plaintiffs and the, the government settled that Los Angeles' ordinances about you know, sleeping in public spaces would essentially, what, not be enforced until a certain amount of, of space was constructed, became available for the homeless population yeah, in e- the city?
2: That's exactly right. The, the Jones case and the Martin case are identical on their core facts and they're identical on the principle of law. After we were successful, um, I was at the ACLU at the time. I worked with uh, lawyers for the homeless like Carol Sobel. Um, after we were successful in the Ninth Circuit, the city said to us, why don't we sit down and talk about a resolution of the case? And the, the uh, solution was that um, the city would not arrest individuals who were sleeping on the streets because they had no place else to go, sleeping on the sidewalks, until a certain amount of supportive housing was built. Los Angeles is the homeless capital of the United States. It remains the homeless capital of the United States. It um, does not build housing for individuals who um, through no fault or failure of their own, are on the streets. Um, it has ignored um, it has ignored measures passed by the people of the city of Los Angeles to build that housing and so um, because that housing hasn't been built um we have the tragic situation of people being um compelled to if they want to find a place to sleep, find a place to sleep um on the sidewalks of this city. It's uh you know, it's not the sort of settlement that anybody is proud of in the sense of that that as a result, um, the hope was that cases like Jones and Martin would say to to the city, look you can't you cannot prosecute your way out of this. You cannot treat poverty as a crime. Um, and you cannot use the police to address what is a serious social and moral problem of the community. But to date, Los Angeles has not has not met its uh, met, met its pledge in terms of constructing supportive housing, and that's that's the reason that Jones said that you can't be arrested people. And I think what Martin does is to to lock down that principle: settlement or no settlement. No city can treat um, an involuntary status like homelessness, like poverty, as the basis for a crime.
0: The mayor had, I believe, last summer purported to have done enough for the city. He said the city had done enough as part of the settlement that, in his view, it could begin um, under the terms of the Jones settlement, um, enforcing the laws again that enough space had been provided. Um, Was there much movement on law enforcement going out to, uh, in fact— Enforce those laws at the time, and I suppose, Ooh. do you think that the the Martin ruling does foreclose any movement in that direction by by the city?
2: Well, first of all, the, the, you're right that the mayor made noises like that 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 the city had fulfilled its um, its uh, obligation under the settlement. Uh, in fact, it had not. In fact, there was no documentation that was ever presented, and um, we said to the city at this time that it had not been that responsibility. And so it, it had not, it did not go forward and attempt to officiate the, the Jones settlement. Now, as you, as you point out, um, Martin in the, in a sense has, has taken the reins and of, of this issue and settlement or no settlement. What judge Burzon did on behalf of the ninth circuit is to say once and for all in this, in this, um, circuit, um, Poverty is not going to be treated like a crime. Homelessness is not going to be treated like a crime. If a city wants to address it, it needs to use other parts of its governmental uh, apparatus besides the police to take care of it. So um, Martin Martin makes that the, the law of this community.
0: Um, I just want to ask um, a couple of, of legal points from the dissent um, to the decision not to rehear the case from, from Mylon Smith. Um, one being that— yeah. In his view, I don't think he made the argument that, hey, actually sleeping out of doors in a public space is a voluntary act. It seemed more in his view that there wasn't that much Supreme Court precedent for the idea that the government absolutely cannot penalize acts that aren't altogether voluntary. I think he cited a couple of examples, one being that if you had a parolee who was an alcoholic and there was a condition of parole that he couldn't drink and then he did. And, you know, He has alcoholism, so you wouldn't think that was super voluntary, but a punishment – and that context was permissible under the Constitution, you know, is there, in your view, a, a pretty robust and, and clear constitutional line that suggests you, you cannot uh, penalize folks for an action like sleeping in a public space that's, um, you know, in, in, in Judge Burzons' view, not very voluntary?
2: I don't think there's any question that the Supreme Court, and this goes back decades, in a case called Robinson versus California, in In that case, what the what the court said is, "Look, there are certain conditions that are beyond an individual's control. talked about addiction, gave us an example. imagine if if a community tried to criminalize uh, certain diseases like like leprosy. I think we're actually in better shape in that with respect to that argument today than we were decades ago, because we know that individuals don't choose to be homeless. Look, I represent uh in other litigation as well, homeless veterans. These are individuals who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan suffering from PTSD, suffering from brain trauma. These were individuals who were leading productive lives before they went to serve our country and then they came back and they were unable to uh live live what we would call normal productive lives. Um uh th- in no way are individuals in those circumstances acting voluntarily, and so if if anything, I think our knowledge of, of what homelessness means, uh, the number of mentally disabled, physically disabled individuals who are on the street, the number of individuals who who have tried uh, diligently to get um, to get decent jobs and to find housing in a community where Affordable housing is uh, at a chronic shortage. Um, I think if anything, those principles are um, are stronger today than than they were when the case was first decided. Nobody can walk on the streets and see individuals who are uh, living lives that nobody would trade places with and say anybody is there by their voluntary sort of choices and criminalizing conditions that people themselves cannot overcome. It's um, cruel, it's uh, unusual, and it, it is penalizing a status rather than individual individual willful acts.
0: That last point, this is mentioned by Judge Bennett and, and dissent, that the cruel and unusual language from the Eighth Amendment, in his view, you know, really foresaw limits on the use by the government of just sort of certain discrete types of punishment, like say, I don't know, solitary confinement or firing squad for executions. Um, and that the Eighth Amendment shouldn't really be used or wasn't really intended to be used as a, um, a limit on the, the types of activity that the government can police, can punish. Um, you know, is this new constitutional ground that the court is breaking or, or has that you know, principle already sort of been established that it could be no, just, uh, used just, that way?
2: Chish just, is just, just wrong. Um, he's certainly correct that. Cruel and unusual punishment, which was um, the basis for the Supreme Court's decision in the Robinson case that's the addiction case that I was talking about, but it, it certainly uh, applies to what he's talking about punishments that are are cruel by uh, by standards of, of decency. But there has always been an aspect of this amendment going back historically to its basis that says what we've been talking about, and that is that you cannot punish status. Um, and that by arresting individuals and prosecuting them for the fact that they are poverty-stricken and have no means... Uh, to live what are daily necessities, to find places to sleep, to find places to sit, to find p- places to, to be, that that is a violation. And so, I mean, he's just, he's just incorrect in terms of what the meaning of the Eighth Amendment is. And, you know, when you think about it, like a lawyer, not only does this, um, implicate the Eighth Amendment and the status, the status prohibition of the cruel and un- unusual punishment clause, but it also goes to our basic definition of liberty under the 14th Amendment. Look, the, the, the business of the 14th Amendment was to assure that government respected the liberty of individuals and where individuals have no place else to, to, to reside, no place else to be, no place else to sleep at night, for government to say we are going to prosecute you for that very fact is to to cut a really deep hole into the protection of liberty. So I think under either of those theories, what we know commonsensically is true, and that is government's gotta find a way to address homelessness other than through its police.
0: Sure. I mean in in terms of, you know, homelessness policy, of course the dissenting judges argued against this ruling on policy grounds too. Judge Smith said, you know, um in holding that the government can't enforce its laws against sleeping in public areas. It just sort of ties their hands behind their back and, and limits their options in dealing with homelessness. You know, I think he sort of implicitly makes the point that that Jones settlement you know, was put on the books in 2006 and the homeless community in LA has grown since that time. So what would you, know, you say to folks that suggest that the two are clearly connected, that um, you say you won't enforce these laws and the homeless population will, will as a result, grow?
2: It's hard for me to understand the, the individuals whom I know. It's on Skid Row and throughout the city. As I said, many of them are, are individuals who were veterans or children or individuals with, with certain disabilities. What do you say to those individuals when those disabilities and the state of their poverty is such that they have no place else to go? Putting those individuals in jail, putting those individuals in the criminal justice system, I don't understand how that's going to meaningfully affect the policy in terms of addressing homelessness. You know, the clients whom I represented before the Jones injunction went into effect were individuals who were cycled repeatedly, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of times through the criminal justice system. Individuals, uh, at, at, at one point, the jails, we're the largest homeless shelter, effectively speaking, in this community. And homelessness certainly wasn't being retarded by, um, um, by uh, using the criminal justice system to bring people out. I represented individuals who were on the streets, who got arrested, and that, in fact, disqualified them from any capacity to get jobs because they now had a criminal record. We found individuals who were brought in for jail, uh, uh, jaywalking. Look, th- nobody thinks that by cases like Jones or Martin that that's good homelessness policy. That's just, this is just basic policy with respect to saying that we shouldn't be treating these individuals as if they are, as if they are criminals because they're not criminals. We know how to address homelessness we know that there are programs all over the United States that work effectively, programs of supportive housing that keep individuals off the street and save the the taxpayers millions and millions of dollars by uh, reducing social services and by keeping them out of a very expensive criminal justice system. Homelessness is a person-made problem. Um, If we want to address it, we we address we use utilize, use social policies that have been shown to work. This community in Los Angeles has elected not to do that. It has elected to ignore the voters when the voters talked about putting in supportive housing, and where the voters allocated millions and millions of dollars to do that. That supportive housing hasn't taken place yet. So, the criminal justice system isn't the answer to homelessness. It's not a deterrent to homelessness. It just says we've got we've got to treat people as if um, we respect their dignity and not prosecute them for things that they have absolutely no control over, but that we do.
0: okay last last one is you know is that then the the primary policy solution is, is building more supportive housing. I was noticing some uh, statistics from HUD that in, under their statistics, LA houses or has room for about 20% of its homeless population. And that's compared to New York, which seems under their statistics to house about 95% of its homeless population. And yeah. also San Francisco, which under their statistics yeah. houses 40%. And you think that some homeless farm is pretty bad in San Francisco. You know, why is LA so far behind? Is it mostly just the amount of housing?
2: No, it's because of the political will um there's there is supportive housing in this community that you and I drive past every day, and we don't we don't know it as such. it is such We know it works the idea of a homeless veteran ought to be an oxymoron in the society. the idea of homeless children, individuals who are disabled, individuals who who just haven't had the education all these cases all this work is the same work i'm I'm doing cases right now to deal with the fact that this that that 11 out of the 26 lowest performing school districts in, in the United States are here in California. Um when and many are here in Los Angeles until we get serious about pr- providing housing until we get serious in terms of saying that everybody should get a f- fair shake regardless of their zip code or their economic status and give uh, and have the sorts of schools and and supportive housing programs that we know work. This pro this program is going to exist. I'm not, I didn't go to law school to file cases so that people could sleep on the streets. Um, we all know how to how to address homelessness. As you point out, you know you walk the streets of New York, you walk the streets of any other major city in this country, and you don't see the sorts of public disgrace that we have here in terms of having no other place that to, to house people who are poor and who are disabled. This isn't about this isn't about the criminal justice system, this isn't about deterrence with that. It's about the fact that this community hasn't demonstrated the will to say that uh, that we respect all individuals and that nobody should have to live under the conditions that that we see every day and drive by.
0: Okay. Mark Rosenbaum from Public Counsel. Mark, thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it.
2: Okay, nice talking with you. Thanks for your interest.
0: That's our show for April 5th, 2019. Thanks for more time to all my guests, our reporter Nick Sonnenberg, Professor Arthur Hellman, and Mark Rosenbaum. Also thanks to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One, that California CLE credit is easily available for you having tuned into our program. Just go to dailyjournal.com and find this podcast. You should see a link to a short true-false test. If you take that and tender the corresponding very competitive fee, one hour of CLE credit can be yours. Also, be sure to look for us on iTunes and the other various podcast streaming avenues through which we are available. Search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. You should be able to find us doing so. Finding us, subscribing, rating, reviewing us is all appreciated as it lets us know what we can do better and also helps other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardale. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.